Grove, today we are starting a new series in the Lord's Prayer. And we should answer why prayer is important. And it's not just because God tells us to pray. You should listen to him if he tells you to do something. But the same way a child runs up to their parents to be cared for, comforted, soothed, but also nourished so that they might flourish in their life. This is what prayer is about and what it's for. But prayer does something else, and this is another reason why it's important. Or let me say it this way. It's easier on your faith not to pray. Because as soon as you begin to pray, you begin to wonder, is he hearing me? What kind of God do I have? And if I pray these prayers and he does not answer them, am I still going to trust him? So there's a faith exercise. There's a, there's a test happening every time we pray. And, and let me say this too. If we're honest, we don't really know how to pray. Now, okay, I'm probably being a little bit provocative here, but I'm also being incredibly serious, and, and here's why. You would never hear a child say, I'm a really good conversationalist with my parents. I've been working very hard at this for a long time. I have studied what a good conversation looks like, and my parents are so thankful to me that I know how to have a good conversation with them. If a child said that to you, you would say, there's something wrong here. I don't know that this child understands the essence of what it means to be a child and to have parents that they love and that love them. In other words, someone who, who prays good doesn't think about praying. They think about the good God that they are praying to. And Jesus says, come to me like a child, not with a strategy, not with a plan, but a sense of wonder. The other reason I think we don't really know how to pray is because when I talk to so many people, they say things like, I don't even understand my thoughts and feelings that are within me. And then when you start talking about expressing my thoughts and feelings, I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't have the words. I can't find them. But now you're talking about expressing those things to God. And the beautiful thing about the Psalms, which we're not in the Psalms today, but you need to know this about the Psalms. The Psalms express the raw and full range of human emotions. So what they are a gift from God to you to do is like, you don't know what you think or feel. So the Psalms give you all your thoughts these are words from God given to you for you to pray back to God. It's a beautiful gift. And the third reason I don't think we know how to pray as we ought is because Paul says this in Romans. You don't know how to pray as you ought, so the Spirit helps you with your weakness. And so we're going to rely through this series for the next six weeks on the Spirit. We're going to rely on the words of Christ to teach us how to pray. And, and what you need to see is you first approach him and then he teaches you. You don't learn how to pray and then go to him. You go to him. And let me set the context of the Lord's Prayer. It's in the book of Matthew and it's specifically in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom of God. And the verses that are just before the Lord's Prayer and just after the Lord's Prayer are words from Jesus Essentially to people who are being hypocritical. And it's a warning. Don't be hypocritical. And here's how they're being hypocritical. They want their kingdom to come more than God's. And they want their glory more than God's glory. And the solution to that is the Lord's Prayer. 
Uh, we were in the book of Acts. We just finished it. And, and the book of Acts, if you want to know what authentic Christianity really looks like, look at the book of Acts. So now we turn to the Lord's Prayer to no longer look upon these people, these men who are following Christ to their death and say, here's what, here's what Christianity looks like. But now we say, let's become those type of people. And we're going to start with prayer. So let me read to you. By, by the way, we're not doing Q&A today after the sermon. For, for the rest of this month, we're going to have Justice and Mercy Month, and we're going to hear from different organizations. Today, we're going to hear from four kids. But if you do have questions for me, you can still text me. I don't know if my number is going to be on the screen, but you can text me if you have it. So here, God's word to us from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. And our focus today is on the line, Our Father in Heaven. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's four things we're going to learn from this line, our Father in heaven. The first thing that we learn is that we have access to God like a father. Second is that we have the favor of a king. Third, we have inheritance of the king. And fourth, we have this whole new identity that we get from the king. So first point is access to the king. And we will never pray as we ought to unless we first understand the posture, not that we have to God, but that God has to us. And his posture is that of a father looking upon us like his children. And it gives you an access. And if you understood other religions and you sat down for a meal with someone of another faith and you prayed, they would be shocked at the familiarity that you have when you pray to God. The intimacy that you have. And the Christian has this because we've learned to pray this way from Christ, the Son of God. And this phrase, there are four words, our Father in heaven. And in that phrase, there is packed theological meaning. And a theological, this, this broad, deep understanding of two words, the transcendence of God and the imminence of God. Transcendence and eminence. All right, well, what does that mean? Well, the transcendence of God means he is holy. He's ultimately different than us. He is glorious. He's amazing. He's someone to be feared, yet, well, let me not get there yet. Uh, he, he could be terrifying to you. And he's big and he's unexplainable. And even now, I don't have the words to describe this kind of God that we have. It's like you, you see somebody famous walking the streets. You can't approach them. And even if you wanted to, they've got security guards all around them. You can't get to them. They're inaccessible. And this is kind of what it means to, for God to be transcendent. He's beyond us. He's far off. Yet, the Bible teaches that he's imminent, which means he's close, like a father. He's approachable. Like he's the kind of God that you, you come to and though you're maybe terrified to go to him, you do and you feel welcomed. You feel like you could be vulnerable with this God and you feel that he is so delighted that you are with him more than anybody else that you have ever met before. 
And what you have now found is that he is the God who is far off, transcendent, but close, imminent. He is glorious. And if he got in front of you, it would overwhelm your senses to death, yet somehow he stills you. And he is absolutely everywhere all at once, but when you're with him, you feel like it's just you and him. That's an amazing thing. And this is our God. And So, so I want to just explain and tell you a story. And we're going to just work through the story, through this sermon, about what it's like, what it feels like to approach God as your father, but not really knowing how to do it, but you're learning how. So I want you to think of an orphan. And this orphan is alone, without a father or mother, homeless, living outside of a beautiful kingdom in the wilderness. And one day, another boy goes into the wilderness, into the woods, and he sees this timid orphan, and he approaches him. And they begin to play together. This happens for a few days, and then after a few days, the other boy says, Hey, why don't you come and play at my house? So they walk through this, the stone the, the, the stone floor of this beautiful kingdom until they get to these golden gates. It's the king's castle. And this little boy yells out, open up. And the orphan is terrified, but the gates open because it's the prince. He didn't know it. And they walk in and they begin to play in the castle. And this continues for days. And then one day, the orphan boy sees these golden doors and he wants to know what they are. And, and the prince says, though, that's, that's my dad's room. That's the king's quarters. And this orphan is mesmerized by this door. He wants to get in. This happens for days until finally the prince says, just go in. So he very quietly and timidly walks in and the king looks up and he says, who are you? And how did you get in here? And he says, uh, the prince told me I could come in. The king says, oh, you're the boy. I've heard all about you. And they begin to talk. And this goes on for days until the king gets to know the boy and the boy gets to know the king. And then one day the orphan walks into the room and the king isn't there, but there's some papers on the ground. And so he picks up the papers and reads them and they're adoption papers. And he hears a noise behind him and he turns around and it's the king wanting to adopt him. And so he embraces the king. Yet he still feels a bit timid around the king. And so he has to watch the prince to learn how to interact with the king. And he watches the prince run up and jump into the, his father's lap. And the orphan wants to do this so badly. And one day he works up the courage and he jumps in his lap. And he feels more protected and more comforted he has ever been in his entire life. Yet he is in the arms of the most dangerous man in all the kingdom. And this is what it is like to approach God. Now, if you've ever seen little children at a playground, they'll play for a while and then they'll come and sit on their parents' lap. And then they'll run away and they'll come back. And what psychologists or therapists would say is these little kids, they're, they're comforting themselves by sitting on their parents' lap. And my son, Kale, loves to do this all the time. He just comes and he jumps up in my lap. And um, now he has access to me. If any of you try to do this, I will kick you off of my lap because you don't belong there. You don't have that kind of access to me. But you do have that access to the Father. And if Kale ever said to me, Dad, I really need to be comforted right now. Can I just jump up into your lap? I would say, what are you doing? Of course, get over here. You don't have to ask me those kinds of silly questions. And we are all learning what it is like 
to approach the God, the cosmically glorious God of all the universe, like he's our father. You have that kind of access. And when you approach him, the next thing that you find out is you have the favor of the king because he's your father. When the king is your father, it means he's not your boss. What's your relationship like with your boss? No matter how good they are, how forgiving, how gracious they are, it is still performance-based. It has to be. And if you don't show up, eventually you're going to get fired. Eventually you're going to stop getting paid. But a father does not fire his children. In the famous story that Jesus tells, the story of the prodigal son, it goes like this. There are these two brothers, and the younger son, he goes up to his father and he says, can I have my inheritance now before you die? Which in this culture is a way of saying, dad, I care nothing about you. I'd wish you'd just go ahead and die already so I can get what's coming to me so I can go and live the life that I'm wanting to live. In fact, I'm seeing your life as the problem and the hindrance of the reason why I get to go live the life I want to live. So can I just have my money now? And so the father says, yes, take it. So he runs off to go live this life he thinks he's supposed to live. And as he does, he loses everything. He squanders everything. And he finds himself alone, without money, without food. And he's eating next to pigs. And he's a smart guy. And he says to himself, you know, even my father's servants or even my father's employees live better than this. I'm going to go run back to my father, but I'm not going to ask to be a son again. I'm going to ask to be like one of his servants, one of his employees. And I'm going to show him that I'm ready to work hard now. So that's his plan. And he goes back to the village. And on his way, the father sees him coming from far off. And the father takes off running to him. And he embraces him. He puts a cloak around him. He puts a ring on his finger and throws him this huge party as as a way to say to, to him and the rest of the village, you are my son and you are restored to your rightful place. I think too often we're, I don't think, I know. I know what you're doing. I see you do it because I do it. We keep approaching God like he's our boss. And it's all performance-based. And we're going to go to pray. And But before we do, we, we, we say to ourselves, mm, I think I need to go do some good stuff first. I had this, this person that I went to high school with, and people that I go to high school with are a little bit shocked sometimes when I tell them I'm a pastor. And then so we're talking, and he said, you know, I'd go to church if there was a way for me to atone for my sins. And what he's saying is, I don't think the church is useful because I'm not work, I can't work off my sins there. Let me tell you what this place is. This is a place filled with people who have come to the conclusion that there is no way that we can work off of our sins. So the, la- the only thing we have left to do is to rely completely on grace. So if you are waiting to approach God like your boss, who you have to do some good stuff before you get into his presence, you're never going to go. And if you do go, you're going in this arrogant way, puffed up, thinking you are greater than you are. And I'm going to tell you the problem. If you go to God that way, like you're doing enough, you're never going to know him as a father. You're only going to know him as a boss. And all it's going to be is you're thinking, look at me. I'm so good. I'm so wonderful. And God is so lucky to have me. And and then what's going to happen is you're going to have this business-like relationship with him. And it's going to be a negotiation. And you're going to find yourself saying, God, if I do this for you, will you do this for me? That's not the relationship of a father and a son. And then you're going to do something even worse. You're going to say, 
God, I've been doing all of this for you. Now you owe me. And then when God does, when God does not give you the life that you want, you're going to be mad at him. And the proof that you think of God as your boss is you are mad at him all of the time because you think you deserve a better life. You don't see him as a father who knows what you need way more than you do. You see, I, I hear sometimes pastors say, you might not be experiencing God because you aren't pursuing holiness enough. Now, I want to be careful here because there's a tension to be held, but, but I don't think that this is true. And the reason why it's not true is because no one is holy enough to experience God. The only way we come into the presence of God is completely by grace. And then when you're in his presence and in his grace, in his mercy, and he's wrapping you up in it, and then you see his glory and his beauty and his worth, then you are transformed and you become more holy. Your self-improvement projects will not work. You're never going to be able to transform yourself. The only place you're transformed is in the arms of him who has been merciful to you and gracious to you. And every time you have these encounters with his grace, you walk away more holy. So the path to holiness is grace. Grace that gets you to go running to him. Got to stop negotiating deals with God. It's like Christians should look a little bit reckless in the way we just approach God because we know his grace is good and he's always will have it for us and then we're transformed by it. Let's go back to the story of an orphan, of the orphan. So one day this orphan is in the king's hall and he sneaks into the king's quarters and he sees the crown and he places it upon his head and he's looking in the mirror, dancing around, feeling pretty good about himself and then he drops the crown and it breaks and he feels so much fear that he decides before the king kicks him out of the castle, he's leaving. And he goes running off back into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, he stays for days until he hears footsteps behind him. And he turns back and he looks and it's the king. And he takes off running because he feels so much guilt and so much shame over what he's done. And the king chases him down, grabs him, holds him in close and says, I love you. Please do not ever leave me again. The king says, my crown, it's important. And it's broken, but I can fix that. But you've broken my heart by leaving. Stay Come back home. And some of you, look at me, look at me. Some of you need to be caught by his favor so you will return home again. It's been too long. Go back home to him. And when you do, you're going to find our third point, that you have a king's inheritance. So when the king is your father, you inherit the kingdom. It's yours. We are called co-heirs with Christ, meaning everything that is his, he shares with us. Now, look, this is not, this is not stuff 
This is not money type of things. I mean, there's going to come a day when all things are made new and we are in paradise and it's going to be amazing. But right now, the kingdom of God, it's made of the stuff of gold that looks like love and joy and peace, strength and power. And let me tell you something about Christ. There is enough joy in him to set a whole kingdom laughing. And in the spirit, there is enough peace to still an angry army. And in the Father, there is enough love to make every orphan feel like a firstborn son or daughter of God. In the story that Jesus tells about the prodigal son, there's a problem for the older brother when the younger brother comes back home. Because the younger brother has lost everything, his whole inheritance. And if he's going to get restored back into the family, then that means that the older brother is going to have to sacrifice about half of his inheritance for the younger brother to be welcomed back in. And the older brother is angry about it. But in Jesus, you have an older brother who delights in sharing everything that he has with you. So in the story of this orphan, it could go like this. The orphan is taken by the king up to this high hill to overlook the whole kingdom. And the king says, everything that the son touches is yours. And the orphan says, well, won't the prince be angry about that? The king says, no, it was his idea. After all, he has his father's heart. And then the prince comes up to the orphan and says, do you not know that in this kingdom... There's enough love, joy, peace, and strength to supply millions. And there's many, much more after that because it's a wellspring of the kingdom of God here. You know, I'm becoming more and more convinced that one of our biggest problems is that we do not dream for a love and a joy and a peace that comes from a state of childlike wonder. In other words, you've become cynical. And in your cynicism, you have settled for less love, less joy, and less peace. You've settled so much that you can, you can meet your highest desire right here on the earth. And what I'm here to tell you is if you will take on this childlike sense of wonder, you will dream of a love and a joy and a peace that is beyond this world. And you will begin to think of the things of heaven. And then you will have no choice but to enter into the king's quarters because that is the only place you now know in your heart where the love, joy, and peace you desire is found. It's there with him. And when you enter in, you find the fourth thing that you have a new identity, a king's identity. When the king of heaven is your father, you become like a prince of the earth. The Bible says things like, we will judge angels and we will rule cities. All right, like, what does that mean? I don't fully understand what it means, but I know it means that we're important and there's a high calling Let's go back to the orphan. The orphan is invited on the day that the prince is given his crown. The whole kingdom gathers, and the orphan is invited to sit, stand right at his side as it happens. And as the doors of the king hall opens, and the whole kingdom is gathered, the crown is brought and placed on the prince's head. 
and the whole kingdom cheers, and then they bow. And while the orphan is bowed next to the prince, the prince lifts him up. And the doors open up again, and another crown is brought in. And the orphan looks at the prince, and the prince says, did you not know that you get one too? And then he is crowned. There's rejoicing in all the kingdom. Paul, in the book of Romans, says, all of creation groans for the day that the sons and daughters of God will be revealed. And then on that day, all things will be made new. Now, this makes some Christians a bit uncomfortable because we are called to absolutely bow down at the feet of Christ for all of eternity because we have seen how glorious and wonderful and beautiful he is. And we have, there's everything inside of us just wants us to bow to him. But we're talked here about being like kings and queens. We're talked here about receiving a crown. And we saw this last week. We will receive a crown of righteousness. So there's two dangers that you could fall into. One, you could minimize what Christ has saved you into or you maximize it too much. You see, the maximizing was what happened in the fall where we wanted our own crown and our own kingdom. Now, I want you to hear something. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been in this divine Trinitarian dance for all of eternity, each working to glorify the other. And what happens in the story of Christianity is Christ comes down, and by faith we are told that the Spirit of God now dwells within us. So what that means is we are, in a way, swept into this divine Trinitarian dance, and we are seeing the glory, beauty, and worth of the Father, Son, and Spirit and glorifying them. And it means you're swept up into this. You have this whole new identity, and you have a whole new calling because this By us receiving the crown of righteousness, we are being recommissioned. All the way back in Eden, there was a calling given to Adam and Eve to have dominion over all the earth, to subdue it, to rule well like kings and queens over all the earth underneath the greater king, like ambassadors representing the crown. And that has been recommissioned. It's been reinstituted. And that means when you drive out of this parking lot, you go out in a sense like a king or a queen called to look over all of this land and say to yourself, I have a responsibility here. I am an ambassador of heaven called to bring heaven to earth, called to bring my king's kingdom here. And he's commissioned me. To go and do it. It's a lot of power. And with that power comes a lot of responsibility. You're serving the greater king. To bring the joy of the kingdom in. The love of the kingdom in. The peace of the kingdom in. And you have to step into the calling. And in order to have the courage and the desire to step into that calling, you need prayer. And you also need to see that none of this would happen without Christ. Because he opened up the heavens and he came in. He rent them open. And he came in and he sought us orphans out in the wilderness. And he called us into his kingdom. 
And then he called us into his father's home. But there was a great cost for this. And I want you to see something. Jesus came vulnerable like an infant child. And what that's done for you is he's taken his glory and he set it aside. And by doing that, he became approachable. You would have run in fear of him if he came into this earth showing all of his glory, all of his might. But he veils it so we might approach him. And then the cost grows. Because we did something long ago. When God said, you are like kings and queens over all the earth. We wanted more. We wanted our own kingdom. This is the thing we fight every day against. Like the, the, there's something in you that wants your own kingdom so bad. And you want your own empire. And if you could just have it. And if God would just listen to you and build it the way that you want to build it, you know everything would finally be okay. And he keeps not doing it. So you keep not trusting him like we did in the garden. And it broke his heart when we did it. And we keep doing it. And he's a good king. And good kings must execute justice. And so the arrow of justice was pointed our way. And just before it sunk into our hearts, Christ, the Son of God, stepped in our place. And when he does... He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only place in all of the Bible where Jesus does not call God Father is right there. And it's because in that moment, he loses his sonship so we can become sons and daughters again. It's in that moment that he wears a crown of thorns so we can have a crown of righteousness. And it's in that moment that he is driven down into the despair of death and hell. And then he rises up from the graves to break open death so it doesn't own us anymore. And then in his resurrection, he opens up the heavens. And so now we have a path in. And now when we stand at the door and knock, the gates are opened up. And we're welcomed in because our, our, our Savior has gone before us. And he's opened the kingdom up to us. And we walk in the kingdom. And then we walk up to the castle, the palace, and the doors open for us. And then we walk into the Father's home. And there in the Father's home is a room. And above that room has your name on it. And underneath the title, Son or Daughter of God. That is yours. Discover your childlike wonder again. This whole thing, everything I have said for the last 35 minutes is meant to just get you to go into the room with him. Nothing else, not planning what you're going to say, just go in and he'll teach you how to pray. He'll teach you what it's like to be with him. Not with strategies, but personally, like a father would do. So go to him. Let's pray. Father, draw us in, and when we run from you, send your Son, the hound of heaven, to come and meet with us and tell us about you and make a way for us back to you.
Help us to live like sons and daughters. Help us understand what it means that there is a bit of royalty to us. And we don't want to waste it. We have a responsibility. And help us step into that, God. Help us see the spiritual orphans of this world. And let us be part. Let us have the honor of calling them to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider. Follow our social media at The Grove Church Official and check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.